coming to share part one of our Easter series, God is Real, is our youth and student pastor. Would you welcome Pastor Bob Gadula here this morning? I love that man. You guys appreciate our pastor. 31 years. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to share. God is real. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's not just accepted anymore, is it? That's not just automatically thought of as fact. That's not just where we are. No, we've got, we've got theism versus atheism. We've got evolution versus creative design. We've got the Bible and faith versus science, it seems. And there's this, there's this constant butting heads. There's a tension there. There's, there's a friction as things seem to bump up against one another. And so where does that leave us? You know, are we supposed to be just uneducated, you know, blindly following people of faith? Or, or can we look at what we have in the physical universe and what we have in the scripture and say, man, I believe that this all points to God. The more I study, the more I come to the conclusion, God is real, you know? Um, but that's up to you to decide what you believe in that. I remember back in the early 2000s, uh, TV shows started changing and shows like CSI and that started coming out. And, and, you know, there was always at every crime scene, there was always a fiber and there was always DNA evidence and people wanted DNA evidence. And I remember reading and hearing about judges and lawyers getting frustrated because they would have this whole trial. And, you know, the old analogy of like, well, that was the smoking gun. Well, come the early 2000s, a smoking gun wasn't enough anymore. Juries wanted DNA evidence. They wanted 100% concrete proof that this is fact. And reasonable, reasonable doubt became a thing of the past to the point where judges and lawyers had to start telling juries reasonable doubt. If you are looking for 100% scientific proof beyond any shadow of any doubt that God is real, you're probably going to end up disappointed. Science doesn't work like that. Evidence is open to interpretation. If you're looking for 100% scientific proof that God is not real, you're going to be terribly disappointed because it doesn't work like that. Evidence points in a direction, but you need to come to the conclusion. I hope that by the end of our talk today, we get to the point where we decide no, the evidence points to the fact that God is, in fact, real. Is there a God? That's like the, the question, right? That's the existential question. That's not one that like, you talk about on your lunch break with your buddies. You'd rather talk about how Gonzaga is in the final or in the national championship game for the first time. We like to keep things light and simple. But at the end of the day, that's a question that everybody has to answer for themselves. At some point or another, you're faced with the question, is there a God? We're talking about atheism. There is no God. There is nothing past this universe. There is nothing past this lifespan. Or theism. There is a God. There's more out there. There's something that started the whole thing and, and something that oversees it. And if there is a God, then who is that God? When we ask the question, is there a God, we're talking about atheism versus theism. And what I want to talk to you about today, I want to just briefly summarize uh, three things. Now, if you, if you search these, uh, they might be called 
called proofs by some people, or they might be called reasonings by another. They might be called arguments by another. Uh, we're going to just call them the three arguments for today. That's what Dr. Dallas Willard uh, sums them up, and he sums it up so well. The first one we're, we're going to talk about is the physical argument. Say it with me, the physical argument. Dr. Dallas Willard puts it this way. It's talking about the nature and existence of the physical reality that we can see, that we can comprehend, that we can touch, physical things. This is what Dr. Dallas Willard says. He, had, he says, however concrete physical reality is sectioned up, the result will be a state of affairs which owes its being to something other than itself. I'm sorry, what? Like, that's a little bit smarter than, than, than I am, and so I need to dumb that down a little bit so that I can grab hold of it. Basically, nothing that you can hold in your hand can of itself create itself. Does that make sense? Let me try to put this in a little bit more concrete terms for you. I brought props today. Anybody know what I'm holding in my hand? An apple, right? We can all agree that this is an apple and that it does exist. Some people will say, well, truth is relative, Pastor Bob. You can't prove that that is an apple. Yes, I can, and I'll show you. This is an apple. This is a podium. Therefore, the apple is not the podium. Truth is absolute, and truth is knowable. It is not subject to interpretation. You can interpret the truth however you want, but it doesn't change the reality of the truth. I am holding an apple. This is an apple, but here's the thing. For this apple, what Dr. Willard is talking about right here with the physical argument, he says this apple exists, but it couldn't have just created itself, right? The apple didn't just pop into being. If you see an apple, you know that there was a cause that created the apple. What was the cause that created the apple? A seed. What did the seed come from? The ground, okay, where did this, how did the seed get to the ground? We're going to take the long route here. Where do you find apples, not in Wegmans or on the ground? Where do apples grow? A tree, thank you. All right, so, all right, so we got some skeptic. Y'all want detail. All right, we're going to go detailed on this one. If I see an apple, I know that it had to come from a tree, right? There are certain pre-existing uh, things that need to be met, certain causes that need to be met in order for the apple to be there. There needed to be ground. There needed to be moisture. There needed to be sunlight. There needed to be a tree. And so in order for there to be a an apple, you have to go back to the cause. There had to be a tree. The challenge with that is for there to be a tree, there needed to be an apple that fell with the seed in it. And in order for there to be that apple, there needed to be a tree, which needed an apple, which needed a tree, which needed an apple. You see where we're going with this. You can't have an infinite series of causes and a physical reality. It needed to start somewhere, right? This isn't rocket science. This is just basic philosophy 101. I love the one thing, Ravi Zacharias, if... Uh, if you are interested in learning more about this, just go on YouTube and search Ravi Zacharias. That guy knows his stuff. He says, there's not one example in the physical universe of a physical quantity that explains its own existence. Everything physical must be traced back to a cause which is not physical. In other words, if you have a domino and you mark it X and you need an infinite series of causes to fall in, in order for the domino marked X to fall... The domino marked X will never fall because if you just have to keep going back and back, there needs to be an origin point for everything physical 
that is not physical. You need something beyond the physical universe to explain the physical universe that we live in. Um, this, is, this is where we move to the Big Bang Theory. See, everything physical must be traced back to a cause which is not physical. Evolution is not an example for original origins. It cannot explain what would have caused the Big Bang. The Big Bang, if you go to physics, it is the singularity where everything came from. They, they say it was this, this like point in existence where everything physical exploded. Any Most astronomers or people who study physics or astronomy or biology, they say everything to it points to there was a point of origin. It was not infinite. There had to be a point in which this started. The singularity, right, the single point, it's the origin point for the physical universe. It had to come to somewhere, but the laws of physics break down at that point of singularity. They have no cause either. An atheistic view of the origins of the universe basically needs to say that once upon a time there was nothing, and from that nothing something happened which caused nothing to explode and become everything. You hear what I'm saying? Like, like evolution, you can take it to a certain degree, and we can certainly see a degree of evolution, right? I lived in England for a while, and the, the dorms that I lived in were 200 years old. You had to duck to get under the doorways. Um, people are taller than they used to be. We know that things change, but that doesn't trace back to a single, we'll get to that in the next argument. Evolution, no matter how much you might want to ride that train, cannot account in any way for what caused Original physical origins. Physical things cannot account for their origin point. Are you riding with me on this one? Are we tracking together? The physical argument says if there's something physical, somewhere back in history it had to come from a point that was not physical. And so we get to <clears throat> the evidence there. I look at Psalm 19, 1 through 3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. When I look at the beginning of the universe, my brain is too small to comprehend that. But when, when we reduce it down to this, the singularity that is this event, it needed something not physical to cause it. I either need to believe that it somehow happened out of chance, and there is no God... Or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Gang, that's not non-scientific. That is, well, what is the possible? Does it take faith to believe the scriptures? Absolutely. God asks, asks me that. He says, the just shall live by faith. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But it is not a blind faith. And it's not an empty faith. I submit to you, it takes more faith to be atheistic in your worldview. I can say I don't understand it, but this is what the Bible says, and I believe that God is true. I'm satisfied there. I don't understand how my car starts when I turn the key, but I know that it does. Somebody figured that out long ago. It takes more faith to believe that it just happened, which leads us to the second argument. It's called argument 
design. Argument to design. Now, pay attention. This is not argument from design. Argument from design would say, well, the Bible says in the beginning God created. And so we take everything from that point and move forward and say it was all design. That's coming from design. Argument to design says we're going to look at all of the science we have and see where it points us. Argument to design says that it's pointing us to design. Basically what it's saying uh, is that because the Big Bang theory cannot be explained by evolution, when we look at the, the physical universe that we occupy, when we look at the complexity of things, we look at it and say, that couldn't have just happened. There must be a designer. It points to an artist. It points to a designer. The, one of the men who mapped out uh, the human genome originally, uh, a man named Francis Collins, he said he looked at 3.1 billion. Try to comprehend that number. 3.1 billion bits of information in a single strand of DNA. He said, when I finished mapping this out, he said, I looked at it, and you could quote him. He said, when I finished my studies, I felt as if I was looking at the book of life. He says, uh, there's a professor, Professor Chandra, I cannot pronounce this last name, and I'm not going to try, and Professor Sir Frederick Hoyle from the University of Cardiff in the UK say this about the complexity of life and, and how it points to design. They say, if you believe that the information content in living systems to be the result of chance, then you believe that a tornado can go through a junkyard and assemble a jumbo jet. They're saying, it's just, there's too much there. And they once said, now Darwinism, you said, okay, well, single cell organism came to this and it became that and, and you know, it grew into this and eventually it walked out of the lake and it grew legs and, and common ancestry accounts for all of this. And, and people look at it and they say, well, you know, this bird's wing looks a lot like this dolphin's fin. And so we see a common ancestry there, but there's no fossil record for a common ancestry. There's these big jumps at each point. I look at my daughter's drawings and I say, well, that person and that monkey look very similar. I see a similar designer in that. To me, the evidence points to design. Let me break it down a little bit simpler. I told you I brought props. I ain't losing props. <clears throat> a Coke can is what I'm holding in my hand, right? Y'all see it? Do you know how this came to be? Let me explain this to you. Let me break it down for you real simple, like billions of years ago, there was a lightning storm, and this puddle of goo that was on the floor got hit by lightning, and slowly, very slowly, it started to change, and it, it changed shape, and over time, the cha shape changed more and more and more, and, and, and it took on certain physical properties that went from goo to being aluminum, you know, and it, and it turned itself into a can-like shape, and, and to adapt to its surroundings, it, it formed itself a red covering, uh, and then to, uh, to adapt even more, on the inside of it became this liquid. It's brown and it's bubbly because it found out that we like sweet and we like carbonated. And, and the formula inside changed over time because originally it contained a substance called cocaine, but we turned that was bad for people. And so it adapted and it evolved into something that no longer evolved that. And as time went on, the top of the can evolved into this pull tab to make it easier access for the people who needed it. And as time evolved, the mouth got even wider so you wouldn't get Get that annoying glug glug sound as you were drinking. And then as we got more health conscious on the outside, nutritional information was, was, was evolved onto there so that we could know exactly what it was that we were consuming and a barcode so that when it scanned at Wegmans, it would go easier. 
in addition to the logo. If you believe that, I've got some land down in Florida I would like to sell you after the service today. No, if you look at this Coke can, and I recognize this is a simplistic argument, and please, I'm not trying to be trite here, but the evidence points to design. When I look at this and I hear the liquid in it that I've now shaken, Pastor Ken, you can have this afterwards. um, Careful when you open it. When I see the logo, I assume there was an artist. That's not a quantum leap to believe that when I see a design on this, there must have been a designer. When I see the changes in it, I assume that there was a think tank that came through and said, these are what we need to do in order to stay competitive. That is the natural, the most natural scientific explanation. And we're talking about what? Like 15, 20 different ingredients? And we're saying the most obvious sign is that somebody designed that. Now look at the human DNA. Now look at the stars. Look at the universe and the vastness of space. Look at how if we were a couple of miles closer to the sun, we would burn up. And if we were a couple of miles farther away, we would freeze. Look at how life couldn't exist if our axis tilted just a little bit more or just a little bit less. There's a, there's a name for it that I can't remember off the top of my head, but basically it's a statistical improbability when you get to a certain point. When you get past that point, even though it's like one in a billion, trillion, 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 so is it technically still possible that something would happen? So you're telling me there's a chance, you know, one in a billion, trillion, 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 trillion. They call that a statistical impossibility. Like, is it possible? Yeah, but is it possible? No. And when you look at the human eye, when you look at like a draft, if you look at how a draft, the, the heart that's necessary to pump, the pressure needed to pump the blood up to a draft's head, but then what happens when a draft bends down, their head should explode from the pressure, but there's this spongy tissue that's around it that allows the blood to fill it to keep their head from exploding. And people look at this and they say, evolution. I look at that and I say, design. And there are a lot of scientists who agree with that. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. I'm not trying to mock science. I'm saying if you look at it, it points in this direction. So evolution can't explain a lot of the missing links. And evolution can't explain the origins of the universe. But God said in his word, he created each one according to his kind and according to its kind. If you're interested in this, there's a book. It's called In Six Days. In Six Days. It's 50 different scientists that wrote papers that believe in a literal six-day creation. And it's excellent. Some of it is way over my head. Some of it, they're real good at bringing it down to a level that I can understand. But In Six Days is an outstanding example of why it makes sense in geology. It makes sense in biology. It makes sense in physics, where six literal days answers the questions. So the first argument is the physical argument. 
The second argument <clears throat> is the argument to design. The third argument would be the moral argument. If we ask the question, does evil exist? One of the most common atheistic arguments is if God is perfect, if God is all-powerful, if God is love, why is there so much evil in this world? I'm going to let Pastor Dan answer that question next week. That's on him. Sorry, buddy. Here's the problem with that argument. Here's the philosophical problem with that. If God is good, why is there so much evil? You are admitting at that point that there is good and there is evil. If there is evil in the world, and we know that there's evil in the world, in order for there to be evil, there must also be good. <clears throat> in order for there to be good, there must be a moral law. Without a moral law, without a, here's the baseline, there's no way to determine what's good and what's evil. If there's evil, there must be good. If there's good, there must be a moral law. If there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. Where did that come from? When we look on the horrors of Auschwitz, when we look at what Stalin did or Pol Pot, when we hear the stories of what was happening under the regime of Saddam Hussein, when we stand at the gates of Auschwitz and we look at what took place, the universal reaction is, this is wrong. How could this have happened? Hardwired into each of us, no matter what corner of the globe we come from, there is a moral law. We recognize the sanctity of human life. We value honesty, fidelity, community. We recognize that in order for us to function, we need these things to be held true. We hold these truths to be self-evident. If there is a moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. How is that put in us? Paul, the Apostle Paul answers that in Romans chapter 2. He, he brings up the same argument in verses 14 through 15 of Romans chapter 2. I like how the New Living Translation says it. It says, even the Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and, and thoughts. Either accuse them or tell them they're doing it right. It's hardwired into us. The three arguments, the physical law, the argument to design, and moral law. The existence of the physical universe points to a cause that was not physical. The complexity of life and abstract nature of probabilities point to a designer, and the moral law within us points to a moral lawgiver. The natural conclusion when looking at these things is intelligent design. I was reading one article, and somebody said, well, how did the amino acids get here, you know, in order to form the first human life? Like, how would that have been possible? And one person postulated that, well, it must have been on a meteor that hit the earth, and, and it came from there. How to get on the meteor? You can't answer for it. You can't answer for it. The evidence points to intelligent design. And so if there is a God, 
if there is an intelligent designer out there, if one of these religions has picked up on it and is following down the right path, how do you know which one? How do I know that it's not uh, the, the Islam that has it or the Buddhists that have it or the Hindus that have it or the Native Americans that have it? How do I know that Christianity is the right one? How do I know that it wasn't the Jewish faith that was the right one? Well, that's a bigger conversation than we have time for today. But let me start this way. If you look at every religion, all of the major religions, every single one of them works the same way, save one. Every single one of them is about doing enough to achieve favor with God. Uh, if you look at Islam, you know, Allah is difficult to know, and you basically cross your fingers and hope, I've done enough. If you look at Hinduism, it's all about, you look at reincarnation, you know, it's all about you. It's all about what you did and you're paying for your past sins and you're trying to achieve enlightenment and you're trying to get to that point of nirvana and all that. It's, every single one of them is about doing enough to get to God. Christianity is the opposite of that. Christianity says you are not good enough, you could never be good enough, and there is nothing you could do to change your natural state but God. So love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All those who come to the Father come through me. It's a very simple thing to do. Either Jesus was right, and he is the son of God. And people say, Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. You should read your Bibles. Read John chapter 8. Jesus 100. When he said before Abraham was I am, he could not have made a more definitive statement of his divinity, of his divine nature, of his origins, than to say before Abraham was I am. And so either he was right or he was wrong. And so we can either establish or eliminate Christianity right off the bat. There's a couple of pieces of evidence that I'd like to look at. One of them would be historical evidence. Archaeology cannot prove that the Bible is true. Y'all understand that, right? The archaeology can't prove. Just because the temple is where the Bible says it was does not mean the Bible's true. You understand that, yes? But it can determine whether or not the Bible is historically accurate. You recognize that? So it starts to tighten up the arguments of the scriptures. Here's the thing. Certain things in the Bible haven't been found. And so it says, boy, we think we're looking in the right spot for the city that's in the Bible, but we haven't found it yet. But there's nothing that's been found that has proven the Bible false. There are a lot of things that people look at and they say, see, see, Bible can't be true, supposed to be a city here. And 40 years goes by and they find it a little ways this way, right where the Bible says it was. We have stones that talk about Pontius Pilate. People said for years, oh, the Bible can't be true, you know, because there was no such thing as Pilate. And then they finally unearth this stone that has his writing on it. And they see this, this thing at this temple that has this decree from Pilate on it. The kings are where they said they would be, when they said they would be. The places are where they said they would be, when they said it would be. I think it was Rockefeller that was reading his Bible and read about guys falling into the tar pits and went, well, if there's tar, there must be oil. And he went over to the Middle East and struck it very, very, very rich, finding oil, because stuff is where the Bible says that it is. We have proven the Bible to be historically accurate. There's nothing in there that's been proven 
otherwise. Are you tracking with me? How do we know that the Gospels weren't altered to fit? You know, how do we know that things weren't, weren't moved around in there? God created a system of checks and balances. See, the scriptures came out, you know, the book of Matthew came out um, within several years of when Jesus uh, died and, and apparently rose again. The people that were there for that event were still around when Matthew's gospel was circulating. When Peter went and proclaimed in the beginning of the book of Acts, when he, when he came out on the day of Pentecost and gave that great sermon where thousands were saved, it was only like a month after Jesus had, had been crucified and risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Like, we're talking a very short window when Peter's standing here saying, he was, you crucified him. And that if it wasn't true, the enemies of the scriptures, the ones who were killing the disciples and the ones who killed Jesus, by the way, would have very easily been up, able to stand up and say, no, that's not true. We all know it's not. Luke is so specific in his history and in his, his geography and, and in his diagnoses as a doctor that when he talks about, well, Jesus did this in this city, the city would have turned around and said, that never happened. The Bible put in checks and balances. And not only that, but the apostles moving the gospel forward, if people started manufacturing lies, they would have said, listen, we're trying to advocate for a life of righteousness. You can't be lying to advance our cause. That's not how it works. The disciples did do that. That's why they wouldn't accept certain writings of people. So you hear now about like the book of Thomas, you know, that the Christians don't want you to know about. No, it was rejected way back then because they said this isn't accurate. Checks and balances that are in place. Prophecy makes up one third of the Bible. You recognize that? You go into the other major religions, and there's a few of them here and there, and and many of the ones that they even have are like, the sun will rise in the morning. You know, it's not a really in-depth prophecy. The Bible has both, for you artistic type that are abstract thinkers, prophecies for the abstract, and for the engineering types that are the concrete thinkers. It has concrete. And with the exception of the ones pertaining to the last days, every single one of these prophecies has come true. In the book of Genesis, chapter 5. Now, this is in the book of Genesis, chapter 5 in my Bible. And this is in the book of Genesis, chapter 5 in the Jewish scriptures who don't believe in Jesus. You're going to find the exact same thing in both. There's a genealogy. It talks about from Adam all the way to Noah. And many of you know that names meant something back in the day. And so Adam, it meant man. You know, his son Seth was born. And they thought maybe he's the one who's going to be the one that, that leads to our redemption. And so they named their son Seth, which means appointed. And Seth had his son, who begat his son, who begat his son, and who begat his son. If you translate the names and put them together, way back in Genesis chapter 5, We're talking thousands of years before Christ. Their names put together mean this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing peace. That's their names put together in the scriptures about Jesus that the Jewish people do not believe was the Messiah, still preserved today. Abstract prophecy that you can find. Concrete prophecy. Okay, Pastor Bob, well, you can twist that. You can, okay, fine. How about the book of Daniel? In Daniel chapter 9, there's something called the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, 
you need to understand something about Daniel. Some of the prophecies in the book of Daniel were so specific. There were prophecies about um, the kingdoms that would come, the Medes and the Persians that took over, and then the prophecies about the Greeks and about the Romans and all that. And they were so specific, especially the ones about Alexander the Great and the Greeks that came. It talked about how he would have, he would be cut off and Alexander the Great died. He was only 33 and his four generals took over. But then these four became really two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. Daniel goes on to talk about like these betrayals that would take place. And sure enough, this king gave his daughter to be married to the other kingdom, thinking that she's going to turn the heart of this king and this king would end up getting power. But instead, she fell in love with this guy, betrayed her own father, and he ended up taking over power and all that. All of that was prophesied about in the book of Daniel, so specific that, that people said, no, that was added after the fact. There's no way it happened and then it was written in including the prophecy I'm about to share with you. Problem with that, we have the manuscripts of Daniel that date way back. We also have 100 years before Christ, the entire Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. The works of Daniel are in there. This prophecy I'm about to share with you about Jesus is in the Septuagint, 100 years before he came. So there's no way it was added after the fact. Here's the one. This one just like, it blows my tiny little mind. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, the prophecy comes about the Messiah, who, who is Jesus, about the day that he would come. It said that he would come now. I'm going to do some of the math for you, but it talks about the 70 weeks of Daniel. Each week equals a seven-year period. And so there's, there's 59 weeks, and then there's a break, and then there's the final seven, nine week, or, or the final week, which is the seven years that we believe are the tribulation, right? In those... In those weeks ahead of it, it comes down to this. I need my notes for this one. 483 years from the command to be signed to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. 483 years is when that should be happening, that the Messiah would come. And so when the command is signed to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem... The clock starts. You can hit your stopwatch on that moment. And you know 483 years from that moment is when the Messiah is supposed to come. The command was signed. Okay, so here it goes. 483 years, but you got to understand the Jewish calendar uh, has 360 days in their calendar, not 365. It's a lunar calendar. not. And so 360 days a year, 483 years, it adds up to this. 173,880 days from the day that this command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the day that the Messiah is supposed to come, 173,880 days. The command was signed by Artaxerxes Longanus. I don't know how to say that. March 14th, 445 BC, this Persian king signed this. You can trace it back. Again, historically accurate. March 14th. 445 B.C., meaning that if you look at 173,880 days from there, and we go back with our calendar now, that's going to take you to April 6th, 32 A.D. April 6th, 32 A.D. is the day that the Messiah was supposed to come. There was an event that took place on April 6th, 32 A.D., we're actually going to recognize it next week. It's called Palm Sunday. April 6th, 32 AD is the day that Jesus rode that donkey down that hill or up that hill into Jerusalem. I'm sorry, what? 
You're talking 400 years before Christ came, and they predicted the day? The day? Come on, man. In fact, mathematician Peter W. Stoner calculated the probability of someone fulfilling just eight of the prophecies about the Christ. There are over 400 major prophecies about Jesus from the time and place of his birth to what he would do to the time and place of his death. This mathematician uh, calculated that to fulfill just eight of the four dozen, right? Just eight of them. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Now, some of those you could probably manufacture. How you control when you were born, right? Like, how are you going to control where you were born? Just eight of them. This was, this was this mathematician, what he came up with. It said it would be one in a hundred million billion. The chances of fulfilling just eight of them would be one in 100 million billion. My brain can't wrap around that. He said, and so here's, here's another thing. The chances one in 100 million billion. If you took a silver dollar and put an X on it, right? And then you took the entire state, you tossed it into a vat of silver dollars, and you took the entire state of Texas, and you covered it four silver dollars deep, and you took a blind man, and you told him to walk around for a while in Texas and then bend down and pick up one silver dollar, the chances of him picking up the one, the one with the X on it, are the same as Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 48 prophecies. You're talking about statistically impossible numbers. It's impossible. And so the Bible talks about These prophecies talks about the realities of what God expects from us. There's one last thing. There's eyewitness testimony. You know, there's that moment in the court hearing where they're all sitting there and they say to the person on the witness stand, and do you see the man who did what was alleged on this day? And the person on the witness stand stands there and says, yes, it was that man, and points right at the defendant. It's a powerful moment in the trial. It's a powerful moment of like, man, eyewitness testimony is huge. How about the fact that out of Jesus' 12 disciples, 11 of them were murdered for saying that this is the truth about who this was? Out of the 12, 11 of them gave their lives. In the 12th one, John, they tried to kill him, and he just wouldn't die. And so they banished him to the island of Patmos. God wasn't done with him. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, if I, now I, I like a good joke as good as anybody. A couple of days ago, my dad cut his finger real bad on a saw, and uh and I was just showing pictures of it because I'm that guy, you know, to different people. And I, and I turned around and Pastor Pat came walking out of his office. I was like, do you see this? And he goes, oh, oh, I wish you wouldn't have shown me that. Oh, I don't. And, and he starts staggering. He, staggering, he starts like to tip. And I'm like, oh, and I go running over and I catch him like, oh, my goodness. I just And he like turns and looks at me. He's like, just kidding. You know, he messed with it. And I was like, ah, 
like, like I, he set it up. Really, I didn't suspect at all. He, he got me good. I love a good joke. I love to mess with people. I don't know if it's the older brother in me or if it's just a Gadula family trait. Like we've, we've made it an art form in our family, but it is so much fun to just see like how far can you take people? Back before I was saved, lying was like a sport for me. I just did it to see what can I get people to believe? But if my life was put on the line, I don't think I'm willing to continue perpetuating. I'm not willing to die over that. Now, you might look at that and say, yeah, but if it meant your spot in history and you'd be famous and you have this legacy, you might, okay, maybe I would. You're going to get 11 out of 12 guys to do that? And the 12th one being tortured and won't do it? Like, these guys would not recant. And then the ones that, that weren't even the apostles, but they were around four or two. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds. When you signed up to be a Christian back in these days, it was a death sentence. Like, you knew me and my family are probably going to be tortured and killed for this. Who would do that to perpetuate a lie? Eyewitness testimony. Over 500 people saw Jesus before he ascended back into heaven. And so as I close, you've got these arguments, the physical argument. There had to be a starting point. The argument to design. It's too complex. It had to come from somewhere. The moral argument. How could I possibly have all of that in me? How could we all have this moral law in us if there isn't a moral lawgiver? Then you look at the scriptures and you see the historical accuracy. You see the archaeological evidence. You see the prophecy that's come true in the history of that. Then you see the eyewitness testimony, these people that were willing to die take away from that, I can tell you how my life changed when I met Jesus. And you can see that time after time after time. You see these healings that science can't explain. You see these people that their life just takes a 180. And the Bible says that it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm a new creation in Christ. The evidence is overwhelming. Now, I'm not saying there's never a doubt here or there. I love what the disciples said. We believe you, Lord. Forgive us for our doubts, you know, like oh, we believe you, but we still don't understand. There's still certain doubt in there. Man, I got questions. There are certain things that I really wish God would have said because it would have made it so much easier for me, but he didn't. I got to live with that. We're talking about a reasonable doubt. How can you explain all of this? How can you explain all of this? The reasonable answer, gang, God is real. Jesus is who he says he is. He's doing what he says he's doing. He's done what it says he's done. And what will take place is going to take place. Now, here's the reality for you and me. Evidence demands a verdict. You got to arrive somewhere. You can't just sit back and say, well, I don't know. Well, you can, but again, your belief doesn't change reality as far as what's coming. 
Oh, it can change your reality. Bible says, all those who believe in me will be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The evidence demands a verdict. Psalm 14, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Listen, nobody here is asking you to accept God's word on blind faith. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You have a role. You have a decision. You have a God who is loving, a God who is love. And he's a God who is just. And the day's coming when I'm going to take my last breath. I'm going to stand before him, just like it says. And I need to give an account. And I already know the verdict. I'm guilty. Every sin, that sin means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. If I set a bullseye up over there, if I shoot and I hit it dead center, I've made the mark. But if I miss even by a half an inch, that's, that's missing. Close doesn't count. You missed. Now, it doesn't matter if I miss by a half an inch or if I miss by eight feet and I impale Naomi. I still missed. Now, I'll say this. If sin is to miss the mark, to sin is to sin is to sin. It's the same to God. You missed. The results of certain sins. If I miss by a half an inch, you say, nice try. If I impale Naomi, you arrest me. The results of certain sins will carry different consequences here on earth. But to miss by even a little bit, the consequence is the same. God is perfect. He's pure. He's holy. He's real. His word is true. And if I miss, that separates me from him. And I have missed so big. The verdict is guilty. I'm guilty. I can't argue with that. I know that that's true. But my advocate, my lawyer, the one who argues on my behalf, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession for us, he's the best lawyer ever. Because he doesn't just argue on my behalf, but his argument was Bob's guilty. But I already paid his price. His debt has been paid. He's a free man. I get to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. The evidence demands a verdict. God is real. And wherever you are today, you missed. I had an argument, well, a discussion. A kid who used to be in my youth group, and he's a He's a self-proclaimed atheist now, which what that really means is his girlfriend is an atheist, and so, so is he right now. Every argument he brought, and I said, use Google, bro. He's like, well, it's full of contradictions. I said, tell me about them. Well, 
I said, go ahead, you can cheat, use the internet. One by one, we went through. And at the end of the day, there were no inconsistencies in scripture. At the end of the day, the problem was he didn't like what God had to say and he didn't want to be held accountable by God. Basically, he wanted to be his own God. And I told him, you can do that. God lets you do that, but it doesn't change the reality. You're not God. You can live like it, but you're also going to have to live with the consequences of your actions. Gang, today I'm begging you. The evidence demands a verdict. The verdict is God is real, and I'm not him, and neither are you. And we're separated from him in our sin, but he has made a way by his life, death, burial, and resurrection to pay the price for our sins so that we can come back to where he is. I'm begging you today, don't leave here without getting right with him. Don't leave here without knowing that you're on the right path and on the right track. God loves you so much, so much that he died for you. We question his very existence and he says, what more do I have to do? I came down for you because he loves you, but he is just. And that day's coming. I wanna ask you as we sing this last song to take a moment and examine, do I believe it? Because if I believe something is true, I'm gonna act on it. If I believe that this building's gonna explode, I'm getting my family and I'm getting out. Take a minute and examine what you believe. And if you're saying, man, Pastor Bob, I do believe it's true. And I know what I need to change. Man, would you come up front and talk with one of us pastors? The altars are open to anybody who wants to be right with God. It's so much easier when you got somebody to walk with, though. I know it's uncomfortable to get out of your seat and to come up. But I'm telling you, we're meant to do this together. God is real and he's made us a part of his family. He wants to make you part of that family too. Can we all stand and we're gonna sing together. Take the moment, contemplate.